This is the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein. Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're all having a great Saturday. Thank you for tuning in to get your weekly fix of politics in New Jersey, which is the, the greatest spectator sport on the planet. I'll be joined today by State Senator Declan O'Scanlan, a Republican from Monmouth County. I'm going to ask him about how the Jersey Shore is faring in its comeback one summer after the pandemic devastated tourism and the summer economy. That'll be coming up at 420, and you won't want to miss what the senator has to say. And at 435, I'll be joined by Jean Sizdak. She's the Associate Director of the Center for American Women and Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers. And while the nation may have elected the first woman vice president, you're not going to believe some of the statistics about how women are faring as candidates for local office in New Jersey. You're not going to want to miss hearing out on that. Uh, Just... Five days from now, it's Election Day in New Jersey again. And and make no mistake, this vote is hugely important. On July 15th, the New Jersey Congressional Commission uh, for Redistricting will meet to select the 13th member, a tiebreaker, as the state prepares to undertake the decennial redrawing of congressional districts that will reflect the new census. And and remember, control of the U.S. House of Representatives, Nick, is up for grabs next year. Republicans need to flip five states to win a majority and elect a speaker. So no matter what side you're on, this is a big deal. In New Jersey, there are four districts that are currently held by Democrats that, you know, as they as they stand right now, are politically competitive. Those are the seats of Tom Malinowski, Andy Kim, Michael Sherrill, and Josh Gottheimer. And we go into redistricting with some realities. It's it's hard, but by no means impossible for the new map to strengthen the chances of Republicans to pick up all of those seats. But it's important to realize what's at stake here. It's It's also possible that all four of those seats could be made more democratic. This is called gerrymandering. You've been hearing about it for years, and and this is where the sausage gets made in the redistricting commission. There's also an outside chance that Jeff Van Drew's seat in South Jersey, that's the seat Van Drew won as a Democrat in 2018 and as a Republican in 2020, there's a chance that that seat could become more competitive. So it could very well be the, the road to a congressional majority, the, the road to deciding who is in charge of the U.S. House of Representatives after the 2022 midterm elections. That, that road may be paved right through the great state of New Jersey. And for those of you who don't know, New Jersey has an independent commission to draw congressional and legislative districts. And as you might imagine, the, the goal of each party is to pick up states. Uh, pick up seats, and it, it's it's unlikely that the two parties will agree uh, unless uh, unless they make a deal. But knowing the identity of the tiebreaker will be a major component in determining how that deal making process proceeds. So here's what's going to happen in the next five days: the six Democrats and the six Republicans on the commission will meet. And they'll vote to select a tiebreaker. Now, there's a chance that the two parties will agree. 
Uh, that's what happened in 2001 and in 2011. But from what I'm hearing from both sides, it's not likely that they'll they'll come up with the same candidate. So the Congressional Redistricting Commission meets, and, and two candidates, the two candidates will likely receive six votes each. Uh, there'll be a tie. And how do you break a tie to choose a tiebreaker? Well, well Jersey's thought of that. Both names go to the New Jersey Supreme Court, and the seven justices will vote to select one of the two candidates proposed by the commission. This is this is David Wilds, and I'm talking about congressional redistricting on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on 77 WABC. And I want to be clear about something. The lack of a consensus tiebreaker from the congressional redistricting commission puts Chief Justice Stuart Rabner and his court in a in a no-win situation. It will essentially force the Supreme Court, which tries to stay out of partisan politics. They try. They don't always succeed. But but now they'll be forced to pick either the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate. There's no option for them to come up with, with their own person. And it, and it wouldn't surprise me if over the course of the next few days, the Chief Justice uses some back channels. And, and anyone who thinks that Supreme Court justices and politicians don't use emissaries to conduct business behind the scenes. Well, well, they should know that it happens a lot. But I think the Chief Justice might try to work at a deal to spare the court from having to make a partisan choice. And the decision of the Supreme Court on a tiebreaker could easily have national implications as Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy fight it out on a 435-district national map for control of Congress. The court has till August 10th to make a decision. So in just one month, we'll have a better idea where we're going on congressional redistricting. Uh, objectively, if if I were asked to put money on, on which party the Supreme Court would side with, well, I wouldn't bet a penny. Because when you're from Jersey and you've watched state politics for almost 48 years like I have, you, you learn to live with disappointments when it comes to the Supreme Court. And in the past, when I've tried to predict something, I've, I've been reliably wrong. And I think sometimes I should just take that George Costanza route and simply do the opposite of what my instinct would be. But you, my valued listeners, you're entitled to make your own guesses. So consider these two points. One is that a majority of the justices, four of the seven, were appointed by Republican governors, three of them by Chris Christie. And two, the New Jersey Supreme Court, Regardless of which party the appointing governors have come from, they tend to rule uh, closer to the left than to the right. And they, they did it on cases involving state borrowing twice. And, 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 I, and I think back to 2002, it was a ruling I didn't think could possibly happen. Uh, they allowed the Democratic Party to replace their United States Senate candidate in October, after the ballots had already been printed, in order to help avoid losing a seat. So so my overwhelming instinct is to say that the court will pick the Democratic choice for redistricting tiebreaker. Uh, but but this, and, and I think it's an important point, maybe the Chief Justice wants his court to avoid the appearance of Democratic partisanship. Maybe it's Stuart Rabner who goes full George Costanza and does the opposite of the instinct. And, and the next part's important. The, the Chief Justice alone, and with no parameters, picks the tiebreaker for legislative redistricting. So it's not unreasonable to think that Rabner might split the difference, 
give one party an edge on congressional and the other an advantage on legislative. This is David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. New Jersey is among the top donor states for potential presidential candidates. And that's going to help the Republican nominee for governor, Jack Cittarelli, raise money in his bid to unseat Phil Murphy. The 2024 candidates are anxious to come to New Jersey. They're anxious to meet New Jersey donors. And Cittarelli offers them a simple vehicle to to come into the state. Uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, was in New Jersey last month. He was he was raising money for his own campaign, and, and Chitterelli participated in that event. Uh, Nikki Haley, the former United Nations ambassador, former governor of South Carolina, she's raising money this weekend for Chitterelli. And, and there are other candidates. Uh, some are planning to help Chitterelli, I'm told. And uh, well, let's just say there, there's other candidates that are sitting on their hands and, and are doing nothing to help him. Uh, but as the candidate for governor, Chitterelli is the titular head of the New Jersey Republican Party now, and it's entirely his call on which possible candidates for the White House can play a role in the 2021 election in his state. One of the public questions on the ballot in November is a constitutional amendment that would allow betting on college sports. The legislature had no problem putting the issue up for a vote by the people. It, it passed overwhelmingly with bipartisan support. But a, a new poll shows that Jersey voters aren't sold on the idea, at least not yet. And according to a poll released this week by Fairleigh Dickinson University, just 25% of voters say they'll vote yes. And just under half, 49%, said that they'll they're opposed to betting on college games. So the rest are undecided. And those with a financial stake in sports betting will will probably need to actually mount a campaign to convince voters that this is a good idea. Uh, I've been, I want to talk about something else that's happened in Washington. I, I've been tough on Congressman Donald Payne over the last few weeks, and it's it's only fair that I, I point out a rather substantive legislative accomplishment that he had this month. Uh, Payne was the leading force for an amendment to the House Infrastructure Bill. It included $117 billion to assure safer drinking water across the country, and Payne's initiative includes $45 billion to replace lead-contaminated water pipes in schools and in low-income communities. I, I spoke with the congressman this week, and he said he wants to make sure that what happened in Newark and in Flint, Michigan, never happens anywhere else. And that infrastructure bill passed the House. It's, it's now headed to the United States Senate, and and we're all waiting to see what happens there. Uh, I will be back with Declan O'Scanlan, state senator from Monmouth County. We're going to talk about how the Jersey Shore is faring after last summer's COVID shutdown. You're not going to want to miss what he has to say about what's happening in his own part of the state. And later, I'm going to talk about a report card on how New Jersey does when it comes to electing women to public office. I'll be talking with uh, Jean Sinsdak. She's the associate director of the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers. So please stay right where you are. 
Uh, and we'll be right back. This is David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. When it comes to autism, finding the right words can be tough. Finding community in these challenging times doesn't have to be. Join us, even virtually, to move together towards a kinder world for the millions of people on the autism spectrum. Find out how at autismspeaks.org slash together. The pandemic of 2020 felt like a dark tunnel. And while 2020 is over, the impact is not. I'm New Jersey's former governor, Richard Cody. The pandemic affected our physical and mental health. My wife, Mary Jo, and I started the Cody Fund for Mental Health to Change Lives. Mental health issues can impact any family, including ours. That's why we want everyone to know about NJ211. NJ211 is an information and referral service connecting anyone in crisis to the help they need. It's for everyone, veterans, seniors, even children. I'm living proof there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not a train, it's help. It's NJ211. Remember, it's okay not to feel okay. If you need help, go to nj211.org or dial 211. The New Jersey Globe Power Hour is on. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. It's David Wilds, and I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. Declan O'Scanlan is a Republican state senator representing part of Monmouth County. He's one of the Senate's experts on budget issues. Senator, thanks for taking some time out of your Saturday to join me. Hello? Hi, how are you? Hey, hey Senator, how are you? Do you hear me? I can, yep. Okay, great. Uh, Senator, the, the Jersey Shore was hit hard last summer by the pandemic, especially the tourism industry. How are things going now? Well, we're definitely bouncing back. Uh, people are ready. And, I, I, you know, as I've been predicting for quite a while, uh, there's a there's a feeling of joy out there uh, and, and optimism that we haven't seen in a long time. So it's good to see. They're still struggling. Uh, they, you know, their plights, uh, the businesses' plights, particularly restaurants, uh, have been made worse by, or were made worse by, the really slow reopening. Uh, we were the last of all the states, actually, uh, to to go to full, actually to increase at any percentage of indoor dining, uh, and then get you know to full uh, capacity. Now they're facing, um, and by the way, there was no health benefit to that. It was it was just needless torture of these businesses. Uh, now they're facing challenges of employees as the state once again uh, drops the ball. Uh, we should be encouraging people to get back to the work, back to work. That's for their own good and the economy's own good, and these businesses' uh, survival depends on it. Uh, I'm at the Jersey Shore right now, and speaking to businesses, uh, a number of them are closing that, that would be you know, on the shore, open seven days a week, are closing. Uh, a day, sometimes two days, because they, they've got to give their staffs a rest because they can't find workers. One of the reasons why they can't find workers is because we continue to pay people to, to sit out the job market an extra $300 a week. Uh, that should stop. Uh, it's time. 
But even if it doesn't, we need to reinstate the obligation to look for work and then take a job if it's offered. It is ridiculous that we're not requiring that of people. Again, it's, it's in their best interest as well. The longer people sit out, the more stress happens to these businesses, the more of them will close. And there are many of them still on the brink. Um, um, and those jobs won't be there when folks want to come back into the market. I'm, I'm not an expert on on the restaurant business, Senator, but it, it seems to me that, like any business, they, they become profitable when they're open all the time and crowded all the time. Is Are, are the restaurants crowded now? They are, yeah. People, there was a belief among some folks that people wouldn't be ready to go back, uh, but they are. Uh, it really is nice to see. It's uh, I, I'm I'm actually loving it when I have to wait 45 minutes for a table uh, or they can't squeeze me in. Uh, that is uh, music to my ears as these folks, you know, start to recoup some of the tremendous losses they faced over the past, you know, 16 months. Um, it really is nice. So, yeah, things are crowded. The Shores is alive uh, and and hopping. Uh, the Bay Shore, you know, throughout my district, uh, from from Keyport, Keensburg, all the way down to Seabright, uh, it's really, things are good. Um, it's just, you know, the continued challenges of finding people. And you're right, these businesses operate on slim margins. So closing an extra day a week is brutal to them. Um, so we've got work to do. The and governor should immediately uh, discontinue the, taking the $300 from the federal government, the extra dollars, and should immediately reinstate the obligation to look for work and take it if offered, because it's only going to get worse as college kids go back to school starting in August. Uh, it's going to these guys are going to have, you know, until the end of the summer, uh, a really rough period. Um, and that's what also to your listeners, be patient with servers, uh, be patient with, with staff at these places. They are uh, work to the bone. Many of them thrust out there with very little training because nobody has any choice. Uh, kitchen staff is short, uh, so things take longer. So be patient uh, and tip them well regardless. And, and Governor Murphy is is from the Jersey Shore. He's from your district. You were you were you were among the Republicans that was most critical of his his decision making last summer. You've had a you've had a year to reflect. It, it sounds like you think that that you you were more right than ever, and he was wrong. Well, we've been proven right over and over and over again. Yeah, there's no, this isn't me believing it. It is the the absolute reality. We could have, as we saw other states, open up faster with no negative health impact. Even if we wanted to lag a little bit, uh, we should have immediately realized the mistake uh, when we saw other states reopen faster at higher capacities and with no negative health impact, even right here in the Northeast. Uh, it was obvious. Yet the Murphy administration dragged their feet for months and months. Uh, it, was, it was tragic uh, what happened. And we lost, needlessly lost, hundreds of thousands of businesses throughout the state because of that. Uh, and that is, that is a shame. So it's, there's no debate uh, on, on revenue estimates. Uh, you know, Republicans called it exactly right. We didn't need to borrow $4.5 billion. Uh, I, we didn't need to raise the taxes we raised. Uh, yet, I, you know, again, so we've been proven right on those issues as well. But regarding reopening, I criticized the governor when he was wrong. I 
I thanked him when he was right and praised him when he was right. Uh, I'm equal opportunity. But I, I think in hindsight, we're going to see that the tragic, unnecessary mistakes that were made uh, have hurt New Jersey. We have higher, still higher unemployment rates than other, other states. Our economy is growing, is recovering less quickly than others. Um, and these things are all cumulative. Uh, it's a problem, and we're going to lose more businesses because of it. And but yesterday, uh, the mayor of Seaside Heights, a, a, a conservative Republican, Tony Vaz, he endorsed Phil Murphy for governor. He said, he said that Governor Murphy's he doesn't agree with the governor on a lot, but he said the governor was good to the Jersey Shore during the pandemic. Is 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 that something you think is going to happen frequently among among those that that have been helped by the governor in in terms of their comebacks? Well, let's say this. I don't think it's something that's going to happen frequently, but it's going to happen. I mean, you know, when when governors form personal relationships with people, we saw it with with every governor. There's going to be some cross uh, the aisle, you know, personal relations uh, and someone will decide. God knows what, you know, they're hoping to get out of it, but uh, they'll cross it over and, and endorse someone from the other side of the aisle. It happens every single cycle. I don't anticipate it happening I frequently hear because the the mayor's just wrong. I, and look, I don't know in that particular town what the administration did. And we also know from firsthand experience that governors court, I, you know, individuals on the other side of the aisle. I, they get, you know, particularly good treatment uh, in some categories or bad treatment, as the case might be. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I, I don't anticipate that that's going to be a a domino because it's just wrong. The, the mayor is just wrong outside of his municipality. Uh, it's been a slog. And I, I give the governor credit. This was unprecedented, but in, in instance after instance, we had hard evidence that we were being too restrictive and moving too slowly. And there was no uh, attempt to catch up. There was no acknowledgement. Uh, so the mayor's wrong. Uh, but I get it. There's going to be some particularly courted folks that will cross over. Um, and that's it happens. And I'm speaking with Senator Declan O'Scanlan. Senator, you you voted against Governor Murphy's budget uh, late last month. You said you said that the budget was, was severely lacking in transparency. What happened there? Well, it was just it was, as it has been the case throughout this administration and too frequently even before it. Uh, the way we do budgets in New Jersey is ridiculous, uh, and particularly this year, uh, a massive spending increase. Uh, not one person, not one person who voted on that budget read the whole thing. Most didn't read much of it at all, uh, but it was, it was physically impossible. To, it came out, what, minutes, be, minutes before the vote, right? Yes, yes. The full document came out minutes before the vote. Uh, we spent... Uh, you know, our, our budget hearing before the, the week before the vote, um, we voted to pass the budget out. Again, no one having seen the document. Uh, and we spent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, through legislation that wasn't even released to the public when it was voted on. Uh, members voted yes who weren't even in the building and hadn't seen the legislation. So the process is is dismally flawed uh, it's uh, it's it's no way to uh, it shows a, a huge lack of respect to the taxpayers of new jersey to to move significant legislation like that the most significant legislation without a real 
uh, effective vetting and having people, especially people voting on it, having been able to read it first. Uh, so, so it's been I mean, flawed forever, right? I mean, it's, as long as I can remember, it's been flawed. It's been exactly this way. Is this, yeah. is this fixable? It's, it is fixable. Look, other states do it better than we do. Uh, you know, you have several states do multi, multiple year budgeting uh, and, and have rules about, um, uh, about how you have to move legislation. It isn't just the budget. We move tons of legislation that, that really never sees the light of day until it's rushed through and voted on. Uh, we we held up, you know, and that leaves us fighting against that those procedures. And sometimes we win. We did this time on a couple of bills uh, that now need to be fixed. But too often they are they are rammed through uh, with little or no public scrutiny. Well, Senator Declan O'Scanlan, Republican of Monmouth County, thank you for coming on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour, and, and I appreciate your time on a weekend. David, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Go thank you. Spend your money at our Jersey Shore businesses. And tip well, right, Senator? Absolutely. Be nice and tip well. Fair enough. Thank you. And this is David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC, and we'll be right back with Gene Sinsdak of Rutgers. When it comes to autism, finding the right words can be tough. Finding community in these challenging times doesn't have to be. Join us, even virtually, to move together towards a kinder world for the millions of people on the autism spectrum. Find out how at autismspeaks.org slash together. The pandemic of 2020 felt like a dark tunnel. And while 2020 is over, the impact is not... I'm New Jersey's former governor, Richard Cody. The pandemic affected our physical and mental health. My wife, Mary Jo, and I started the Cody Fund for Mental Health to Change Lives. Mental health issues can impact any family, including ours. That's why we want everyone to know about NJ211. NJ211 is an information and referral service connecting anyone in crisis to the help they need. It's for everyone, veterans, seniors, even children. I'm living proof there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not a train, it's help. It's NJ211. Remember, it's okay not to feel okay. If you need help, go to nj211.org or dial 211. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. It's David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe. Gene Sinsdak is the associate director of the nonpartisan Center for American Women in Politics, the Eagleton Institute for Politics at Rutgers University. Gene, welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. And, and I, I want to talk to you about some reports that your center has, has put out uh, recently. One shows that New Jersey's become a bit sluggish when it comes to women winning public office. Why is that? Well, um, you know, I mean, I think it's been a challenge. We've, uh, we've seen some progress in the last several years, but we still have a long way to go. Um, we just released our annual county report card which basically ranks the counties by women's representation at the county and local levels. And our newest report, which we just put out this past month, highlights that we've 
seen pretty minimal progress over the past year for women's representation in those offices. Um, for example, um, since 2020, the last time we compiled this data, women gained just 15 seats in, um, you know, on city councils. So, um, you know, that's a pretty glacial pace. And so even assuming there's no stagnation at all, we'd be lucky to have parity and representation for the next several decades. Um, so we've been watching this for a long time. And, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, why women aren't running or why we, we don't have, you know, we don't have parity quite yet is that, um, you know, if the power of incumbency is real. Um, you know, the, the vast majority of our, our elected offices in Jersey are, are still held by men. And it's hard to, you know, and many of them have been in office for a really long time. So it's really hard to break through. Um, and, you know, the other piece, the other major reason we know women aren't running at the same rates as men are is that uh, they're not being asked to run. They're not being recruited. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of work to do on that front. In New Jersey, from what I read in your report, bottom half in the country in terms of the total women serving in the legislature, total women serving in local office. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, well, we're right in the middle of the pack. You know, we're not... We're not the best, and we're certainly not the worst. <laughs> um, but uh, we have a long way to go. I will say there was one at one point we were in the top ten for women serving in our state legislature, and um, we've fallen, you know, down to um, you know the mid twenties. And and the reason for that is not that New Jersey's gone worse. We've you know pretty much either stayed the same or slightly improved. But other states have surpassed us in terms of um, women's representation. So we need to do more to catch up, so to speak, and move the needle forward a bit faster. It seems like New Jersey was was got off to a great early start. It was at the, New Jersey was at the forefront on, on suffrage in uh, 1920, first year women had the right to vote. Two women got mm-hmm. elected to the legislature. A woman went to Congress from New Jersey in, in 1924. I, I hope I have my years right, but 1930, uh, they... Democrats nominated a 32-year-old woman to run for the U.S. Senate. I think she was one of the first women to run statewide anywhere in the country. So it mm-hmm. it it seems like New Jersey's New Jersey started out really well, and then it, it slowed down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, and again, this speaks to the idea that other states have caught up or surpassed us. A big problem here in New Jersey is the county party control or part. You know, the 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 tightly controlled parties structure in our state makes it really hard for newcomers um, to break in. And, um, you know, it's just not a very open, fluid system. The party chairs wield a lot of power and, um, you know, and they have a lot of say in who gets the line, for example, um, you know, and, and so that makes a big difference. In other states, that's not the case. Um, and so, you know, there's two issues here. One is kind of maybe lessening party control over the pro- electoral process, but the other piece of it is building party leadership up so they're more you know more diverse in representation so there are women and you know other other newcomers a more diverse pool of people running those party organizations i think that would go a long way to to making a big difference in terms of the types of candidates that are recruited but the bottom line is because of our you know party system here in new jersey the parties themselves really need to make it a central strategy to a more diverse pool of candidates. And so I would urge voters to look to their parties in terms of making recommendations for candidates and putting the pressure on their party leaders to be more supportive of, uh, you know, newcomers and other people 
into the into the political process. And I'm I'm speaking with Jean Sinsdak, the associate director of the Center for American Women uh, and Politics at Rutgers. Uh, you know, one of the things I I look back on. I mean, I I was I ran for public office when I was in my early twenties. This was nearly forty years ago. There were there were a bunch of us that won, and we were you know twenty something elected officials, but there were no women in that group. And I I sort of wonder whether there's a shortage of young women, whether I, th- I think men may begin to run for office at an earlier age and, and maybe maybe that puts men in a better position to move up the ladder because they start earlier. Does that, I mean, is that, is that accurate? Well, I definitely, th- you know, I definitely think you're right. Um, if you start younger, we do know from the research that historically women have waited longer to start their political careers. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, things like family responsibilities and, um, you know, women are the still overwhelming majority of caretakers, for example. So a lot of women waited till their children were grown if they had kids um, or waited till they were more firmly established in their careers. And we know it takes women longer to do that. Um, so um, so that makes a big difference, right? The trajectory can look very different. Um, but what we've seen in recent years is that, you know, that historic trend is not necessarily true. Women are running at younger ages. And I think you're absolutely right. That will make a big difference. Um, women are also, last couple of election cycles, one trend we've noticed is that women are more likely to be self-starters than they have been in the past. So we know that they're not, um, you know, likely to be recruited. So being a self-starter, but we also know in the past they were less likely to be self-starters. But if that trend is turning around and they're saying, you know what, I'm not going to wait for someone to ask me. I'm not going to wait for the you know, party leaders or other elected officials to, you know, tap me on the shoulder and say, it's your turn. I'm just going to take it. Um, that sort of thing. And I think we're seeing that, you know, both in, in women of all ages, but I think in the younger generation. And I think that's going to have an impact, hopefully, um, in the years to come, that it will open up the process more and we'll see more and more women running for office. One of, one of the things in your report that really struck me is that women are only 18% of the mayor, occupy just 18% of the mayor's positions. In mm-hmm. the state, I mean that that's uh, that that seems to be completely out of whack. Even even with the legislature, even with county commissioners, it's it's a really small number. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that. So that's one thing that always strikes us every time we do this report is that we've seen, you know, again, too incremental for our taste, but we've seen more progress at say, you know, the county commission level, state legislative level, um, city council seat level. But the mayors, it's a really stubborn number. It doesn't, you know, um, we have the report on our website. People can see the chart. But the mayor, the bar chart, you know, the line graph that shows um, the trend in terms of, uh, you know, mayor seats and women in mayor seats, it's just, it's almost flat. It's really fascinating. You know, it's been around, hovered around 15%. We're up to 18% now, but it's super slow going. One of the things that I've noticed is is in the urban areas, the, the you know, communities of color, the biggest cities, so Newark, Jersey City, Patterson, Elizabeth, they've never elected a woman mayor. Is mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I see a difference between small towns. So even the eighteen percent, it's a it seems to me it's a misleading number because the biggest cities are electing only men and, and have only elected men. Yeah, you know, and it's hard for me because we don't collect the data. We don't, you know, parse it out by population levels. Um, so I can't quite get deep into the nuance here. But, you know, absolutely right that um, that it's, you know, especially big cities, we know that um, women are still really underrepresented. And 
Um, we need more women to run. Um, there's 76 cities with populations over 30,000 in New Jersey, and only seven of them have women mayors. And um, of those seven, two are black women and one is Asian Pacific Islander. So, um, you know, certainly it's, women are women mayors are even more underrepresented in the really big cities in our state. And then women of color even more so. And we know that across the board that women of color are underrepresented in, you know, political office overall. So we have a lot of work to do on that front as well. Sure. And I am, I am speaking with Jean Sinsdak of Rutgers University. One of the other things that, that I is, is just glaring is is some of the positions that, that a glass ceiling has never been broken. So, so of course, New, Jersey's had, New Jersey had a woman governor for eight years, but never a U.S. senator. I think 33 states have elected a woman to the Senate, and New Jersey never has it. Senate president, I mean, hugely, hugely influential position, exponentially more than the other 39. Uh, a woman has never occupied that post, uh, and you've got... You got Loretta Weinberg, the majority leader. She's re- retiring this year. What what do women need to do in order to, once they're in office, to move up within these these internal leadership structures? Mm-hmm. Well, part of the challenge is that um, you know you know it takes a while to get into leadership, right? And um, you know there's there's a seniority aspect to it, and there's you know the opportunity to build coalitions and sort of assemble power and. Um, and that really comes from having the opportunity. You don't absolutely need to be in office for a long time necessarily to get to a leadership position, but it certainly helps. Um, and so, again, it goes back to this issue of incumbency. Um, we know overall, not just in New Jersey, but across the country in legislatures, you know, there's far too few women in leadership. That's a really huge challenge. And a big part of that has to do with, again, you know, seniority and length of service and having the opportunity to, to move up the ladder, so to speak. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an ongoing challenge, but I'm you know, glad you're raising it. It's something that people really need to be aware of and to be thoughtful of. And what about, what about typecasting of, of women in, in certain positions? You know, in New Jersey, only women have served as lieutenant governor, but, but Mm-hmm. Men, men get to be governor. Women get to be lieutenant governor. Men get to be Senate president. Women are majority leader. I noticed, I noticed there's, there's more women than Manus County clerks, but men, you know, there's just one woman sheriff and there's, there's only men serving as county executive. Do you, do you worry about, about women being pigeonholed into certain positions, but not all jobs? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a, an ongoing challenge, you know, the pigeonholing, um, you know, and it's not to say that these uh, these positions, like majority leaders, very important position, these other lieutenant governors, an important position. But, um, you know, to your point, it's not just a New Jersey specific problem um, that women are relegated to these roles where they're not given, you know, the top position often, right? They're nudged aside or just not given the opportunity. So, um, you know, a big part of that is that we just need to get more and more women in office and to keep a spotlight on the issue and um, and do what we can. And again, it goes back to changing the leadership all the way along, you know, the ele- what our elected bodies look like, what our party organizations look like, um, you know, c- continuing to stay on top of it and helping more women get to those leadership roles and, and to normalize it, right? Um, we've only had one woman governor a lot of, you know, kids in school today, when they learn about the governor, they're still, you know, learning about a man. They're not, you know, they're 
they're they're growing up without seeing it. Um, you know, the, there was a certain era, obviously, when Christy Whitman was governor, that I think it was a good, it was great for girls and boys to see that women can and should be governor. But you know, one is not enough. Right? We need to get more women in that role so that it becomes a much more uh, sort of a normalized thing that the expectations of who are elected leaders are what they should look like changes across the board. Okay. Well, Gene Sinstack of, of Rutgers University Center for American Women in Politics, and you do great work there. So thank you for coming on and talking to me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. When it comes to autism, finding the right words can be tough. Finding community in these challenging times doesn't have to be. Join us, even virtually, to move together towards a kinder world for the millions of people on the autism spectrum. Find out how at autismspeaks.org slash together. The pandemic of 2020 felt like a dark tunnel. And while 2020 is over, the impact is not. I'm New Jersey's former governor, Richard Cody. The pandemic affected our physical and mental health. My wife, Mary Jo, and I started the Cody Fund for Mental Health to Change Lives. Mental health issues can impact any family, including ours. That's why we want everyone to know about NJ211. NJ211 is an information and referral service connecting anyone in crisis to the help they need. It's for everyone, veterans, seniors, even children. I'm living proof there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not a train, it's help. It's NJ211. Remember, it's okay not to feel okay. If you need help, go to nj211.org or dial 211. The New Jersey Globe Power Hour is on. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. This is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. Uh, A man with tremendous gravitas in New Jersey government and politics died this week at at 89. His name was Frank Askin. He spent 36 years as the general counsel of the American Civil Liberties Union of New Jersey. And and I knew Askin just a little bit a long time ago. Our our paths crossed in Essex County politics. I, I didn't I didn't always like him, and he he for sure did not like me. But he was a brilliant man, and he was the founder of the Constitutional Rights Clinic at Rutgers Law School, and he was a a law professor for fifty years. He he made a difference for New Jerseyans. He was he was the lead attorney in a Supreme Court case that involved the Pentagon surveillance of Vietnam War resistors. He he disputed a New Jersey State Police policy in the the late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies where uh, where men with long hair were uh, targeted for stops on state highways and he and he made that policy go away and, and he ran for Congress twice. And and there's an irony to one important part of Frank Askin's biography. After college, he became a reporter for the Bergen Record. He did that for three years until 1961 when the owner of the record, Mr. Bork, fired him for trying to unionize the newspaper. So as a result of being fired as a reporter, Askin went to law school. His went to Rutgers Law School. One of his professors was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it was it was Askin who introduced this 
former future sorry future state Supreme Court justice to the law director of the ACLU. And and in a way the decision of the Bergen record to fire Frank Askin, it worked out well for him and, and, and for the causes that he, he fought so hard for over the more than a half century. And and now just just this year, sixty years after Frank Askin was fired, journalists at the Bergen record finally voted to unionize but not before management again in 2021 tried to bust the union. Uh, I think it'd be nice if the Bergen record extended a, a, a posthumous apology to Frank Askin for the way they treated him, but I'm not, I'm not holding my breath. The, the team over at Gannett never, never apologizes for anything. Uh, but still, to the Askin family and to his extended network of, of friends across New Jersey. I, I offer my sincere condolences on, on the loss of this man. This is David Wildstein. You are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. And and while I was speaking with with Gene Sinsdak at the Center for American Women in Politics earlier, I kept, I kept thinking about one particular story about a, a trailblazing New Jersey politician who, who had her own trouble breaking into the old boys club. And the story goes way back. It goes to Ocean County. Uh, 101 years ago, the Republican assemblyman from Ocean County voted against the ratification of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. And and when that lawmaker, his name was Woodburn Cranmer, he decided not to run again in 1921, 100 years ago. A woman from New Egypt in Ocean County, her name was Lila Thompson, and she took over the she, she took on the county Republican organization, and, and she almost almost it was it was a, a razor thin margin. She, she nearly scored an upset in her in a state assembly primary. So she worked, and two years later, she won a three way primary against two men. And two years after that, Lila Thompson decided she wanted to be a senator. And she challenged the incumbent. His, he was a local legend. His name was Captain Tom Mathis. And she challenged him in the Republican primary. And if you, you've ever been on the Mathis Bridge in Ocean County, uh, that's who it was named for. Uh, so what happened next was rather spectacular, uh, especially since you could imagine a scenario by which the exact circumstances could happen in Ocean County still today. Thompson's husband, Joe, Joe was a... A strong politician in his own right. He had, he had served as an Ocean County freeholder. He had once run for Congress. And Joe Thompson, in 1925, got a job working as an investigator for what was then called the New Jersey De- Department of Institutions and Agencies. It's now the Department of Human Services. And about a month before the primary, his bosses, which which were were all influenced by the Ocean County Republican Organization, his, his bosses, sent him on, on what was called a, a fact-finding trip, and they sent him to Massachusetts, not an easy trip in, in, in 1925, and they sent him to visit correctional facilities, and he was told that he needs to stay up there until after the election, and he was told not to come home, not even on weekends, and Thompson alleged that Mathis, and he was the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, that that this senator engineered her husband's banishment. The senator, of course, denied it, uh, and and the commissioner of that agency went, you know, he, he went even one better. He insisted that Joe Thompson had asked for the assignment 
as a way of avoiding his wife's campaign. So things got out of hand through the criticism of of this this family issue and, and sending a husband out of state and banishing him. Uh, that that Joe Thompson's work in Massachusetts it was suddenly over and he returned to Ocean County about a week before the primary. Uh, as it as it turned out. All Lila Thompson really needed her husband for was was his driving skills. Ocean County in those days was was mostly rural in, in the 1920s, and, and the assemblywoman, she didn't drive at night. Uh, but with her husband sent away and the bosses trying to influence the election, she she learned to deal with empty roads at night, and she drove herself to campaign events. That that primary, I mean, it, w- it wasn't even close. Uh, Mathis won by 20 points. Uh, I mean, the margin was over 1,000 votes. And it would be still 40 more years before a woman would win a seat in the New Jersey Senate, 1965. Uh, Thompson's didn't really make peace with Mathis. Uh, uh, but the former assemblywoman had enough friends. She got herself a county job. And it had a sad ending. She... Uh, 1933, and she was 57 years old. She was on her way home from her county job one night, and she, she fell asleep at the wheel, and uh, and and she passed away. and And the accident occurred two weeks after Joe Thompson, her husband, announced that he would challenge Mathis for the state senate seat. He had given up that seat to become Secretary of State. This is David Wildstein. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour and Talk Radio 77 WABC. Uh, we had some other news in New Jersey this week. Uh, uh, Sue Fulton, the the director of the Division of Motor Vehicles, uh, you know, you, you will give her a round of applause because about three years ago, the New Jersey legislature passed a law to give parking placards to home health care workers uh, so that they could park on the street all night or 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 park at a meter and not have to run out and feed the meter if they're if they're helping somebody in need and that bill passed three years ago and sue fulton uh and i and i hope everybody is sensing my extraordinary sarcasm here took her took her nearly three years to design a yellow placard that home health care workers could hang on their window uh, so that the law could go effect and uh, uh, can go into effect. Uh, she's she's faced a lot of criticism for her management of the uh, State Motor Vehicles Commission uh, last year during the pandemic, still this year. Uh, but I don't know that Sue Fulton will be there for long. Uh, President Biden has nominated her to serve as the Assistant U.S. Secretary of Defense. She is awaiting uh, her assignment at the Pentagon. It's up to the U.S. Senate to confirm her. And uh, for those of you who listen to the show, you may remember Brian Bergen, assemblyman from Morris County, uh, was on, and I asked him uh, about Sue Fulton's nomination. And, and he said, you know, send her to the Pentagon. The Pentagon's great. They can handle it. She'll be more damaging here at, uh, at the New Jersey DMV. Uh, thank you all for listening this week. Uh, uh, we're looking forward to, to more news on congressional redistricting. This is David Wildstein, and you've been listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC.